Well, most of you are probably familiar or recall the description from Mr. Tumnus uh, that he gave uh, to Lucy concerning Narnia, that it was always winter in Narnia, as and has been for ever so long, he said. It's always winter, but never Christmas. Uh, there's profundity in that description, one that we can surely understand when we are willing to give it any kind of real consideration. I mean, the problem with this world, a fallen world, a world broken by sin and hearts that are broken by sin's effects and the consequences of sin, I mean, this world, if you will, of Ecclesiastes, uh, is that it does feel at times like it's always winter and never Christmas. This world can be and often is a cruel and difficult place. Um, be that as it may, culturally, that is just not our style. Uh, it's not our style to talk like that, and especially not our style to think about such things. We are not those who dwell on dark things. Uh, we can barely do it at a funeral, much less in daily life. Uh, we like to focus on the positive. Uh, we concern ourselves with strategies and fixes, and if we're not busy improving ourselves, we're at least busy entertaining ourselves so we never have to think about that dreaded void uh, that exists. As W.H. Auden wrote in his Christmas oratory, we are afraid of pain, but we are far more afraid of silence. For no ni nightmare of hostile objects could be as terrible as this void. This is an abomination. This is the wrath of God. So in our culture, we seek to reverse it. We like to try to make it always Christmas and never winter. Uh, we get busy with celebrating even before the day of celebration, uh, even before we consider the, right, the, the frightful realities of the winter of this world, a world of sin and tyranny, a world filled with rent relationships and disrupted families, a world that is full of disease and ultimately ends in death. And of course, it's for good reason that we seek to busy ourselves, because who wants to think about those things anyway? Uh, especially if we might share some of the blame for what's going on. Uh, no one would want to consider that. So we decorate and plan and shop and celebrate, and when done, uh, and the Christmas season is over, we then strengthen our resolve come New Year, talking about how we'll make this year the best one ever, even if our former plans didn't work out so well. But of course, in Advent... The church has seen fit to force us to slow down and to rubberneck at the wreckage of this world and ask ourselves the difficult questions of what caused it and what can be done now that it is this way. And so the first thing we want to see this morning as we look at Jeremiah uh, in chapter 33 is that it's the old days and it's the same old song. The old days, the same old song. Notice in verse 14, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. We are dropped uh, pretty deep into the middle of a story here. Uh, not merely the story of human history that we're dropped into the middle of uh, in the prophet Jeremiah, but in Israel's own history, we're dropped into uh, something that has been going on for some time. And we get hints, of course, through this text that there is something that is broken, that needs fixing, uh, and we also get hints the, uh, of God's plan to fix those things. When he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, uh, that obviously points to the fact that they're not here yet and that something else is currently going on that is not quite as favorable 
is what is being predicted. We get Jeremiah prophesying, prophesying about better days ahead when God is going to fulfill these promises that he made to Israel and to Judah. And while that's, you know, nice biblical language and we like the sound of it, if you know the history of Israel at this point in the book of Jeremiah, uh, Israel, the nation that we know of from the Old Testament, has been split into these two houses, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The house of Israel is no more. Uh, you know, 150 years after the divide of the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel has already been overcome by Assyria and dispersed into that nation and pretty much dissolved. So the only part of God's people that remains is Judah, and Judah while uh, faring a little bit better than her sisters to the north, because she still exists, is right now in the death throes of her very existence. This is late in Jeremiah's ministry. He has been warning Judah time and time again, look to what happened to your sisters to the north. If you continue in the way that you're going, the same sort of judgment will fall upon you. These are dark days. Uh, and they're only going to get darker for Judah, and that for a very long time. Judgment is on the way. Jeremiah has foretold it. Jeremiah has even experienced it. The prophet himself, as a picture of the nation, has become uh, is wifeless, childless. He's been imprisoned. He was left for dead, only to miraculously rise from the cistern in, in life. And that is exactly, through the life of Jeremiah, what he's promising the people. You will be wifeless and childless, you will be imprisoned, and you will ultimately be left for dead. This is your future if something doesn't change. Uh, you know, these are happy Christmas texts, uh, of course. And the, the reason, of course, is because it's the same old song for Israel. If you've read the Bible at all, you kind of know how we got here. You don't even have to know where we are in history. If you're in the Old Testament, you can guess that not too long previous, Israel has failed at some point and done disservice to the God who has saved her. Judah is God's chosen people, but she just will not obey him. I mean, think of the way that God describes Judah just in the prophet Jeremiah alone. He speaks of her in chapter 2 as his bride. In chapter, uh, later in that chapter, as the first fruits of his field, as his vineyard in chapter 12, as his precious flock in 13, as his firstborn son. In chapter 31, I mean, any human relation that a man can think of that is desirous and good when treated well, God says, that's how I feel about my people. I, I well with pride over them like a father does over his firstborn son. I love her and want to tend to her as a faithful husband would want to do for his own bride. And though the relation is clearly dear to God, when we begin to hear some of what God says he has planned for Judah, you think, like, how can these two things live together? If so precious, then why all of these strange judgments? You know, God says you know, in the prophet Jeremiah that he's going to send an east wind, which is strange language to us, but think of Santa Ana winds. They're identical to what the east wind is. A hot wind coming off of the desert at the wrong time concerning harvest and your crops are ruined. At the wrong time, if a fire has started, the whole land can be ruined. And God says, I'm going to send a scorching wind through the land, destroying both your crops, your sustenance, as well as your residences. He says, your children will be sent off into forced labor. You will experience the worst sorts of shame, the kind that you can't even talk about in public. You will have a cup of wine 
filled with wrath, pressed against your lips. The tree that was Judah and Israel will be chopped down to the ground. In short, it will be like creation going back to the state of chaos before it began. So God looks at Judah and he says, I made you, I called you out of nothing, I formed you by my laws and with the priesthood and with the king, and I filled you. You were fruitful and you multiplied, you filled the land. And he says, and now I'm going to unmake you, and I'm going to tear you down, and I will leave the whole land desolate and empty. No one will be able to live here other than your enemies. And even at the time that Jeremiah is writing, this had already begun. Babylon had already started flexing its muscle in Israel, uh, taking many of their strongest and best and brightest young men, uh, uh, sabotaging and uh, imprisoning the prophets, Jeremiah himself. And Jeremiah came warning, if you keep going, this is going to happen to all of us, not just these small segments that has occurred to so far. At the time of our text this morning, the axe really is laid at the root of the tree. And there isn't too much farther to go before you see the ultimate demise of Judah. But how can that be? I mean, what could cause God to be this angry about a nation that he loves this much, that he calls the apple of his eye, his bride, his son? And it's simple. It's just that the people loved everything else more than God. (laughs) They were disobedient to his law shown most clearly in Jeremiah's prophecy with their outright idolatry. He says, you know, not only do they have idols in their homes, they have idols in the very sanctuary. Everywhere you go in this nation, people are bowing down to false gods. And, of course, that sounds so foreign to us. But, I mean, those false gods were gods that said they would promise, you know, financial security, uh, uh, it will, would provide, you know, pleasure and sexual desire, uh, it would provide rain so your crops would grow. I mean, they were seeking all the same things we were seeking. They just encapsulated them in little, you know, shrines, and we do it in completely other ways. But every time they set up one of these shrines or they went to the high places, they were saying to God that he was very small in their consideration. And so Jeremiah uses the familiar language of idolatry that we find so often in the Old Testament, and he says that Judah has become an adulterous wife. God is her husband, but she just loves so many other men. You know, that one man, he's rich and he'll give her money, and that other man, he gives her great pleasure. And then there's the third guy that she runs around with, he gives her protection. She's gone after so many other gods that Jeremiah says, you're like an animal in heat. You'll just go to anyone who will have you. And this to the God of Israel the God who had sought them and found them and made them and named them and provided for them. And so he says, it's coming. The judgment's coming. And they kept saying, he he won't do that to us. We're his people. We have the temple. God would never allow these sorts of things to happen here. He desired faithfulness. He didn't get it. And so his promise that he was going to undo the nation, literally bring it to deconstruction, to the chaos of, you know, what we see in Genesis 1-1. You know, there's darkness over the face of the deep. There's nothing formed. There's no inhabitable place. And that's what's going to happen to Israel. And this is the background 
to Advent because it is the background to the very history of the world. Now that, again, may sound strange to our modern ears. But from the first pages of the Bible, humanity, you and I, have shown that we love ourselves and about anything else, but especially ourselves, more than God. From the garden where everything was good and provided, where God says if you obey, you can stay. He very quickly chose ourselves over our maker. It was so bad that God sent a flood. We got so bad that God sent a flood. We were so polluted that he wiped the whole world from, uh, of humanity to try to start over. But oddly enough, even a flood couldn't change our behavior. Even that wasn't enough to put us in the right direction. And so he singles out one man for who will become one nation. And he says, well, this nation I'll put all of my energies into and I'll give them my law and, 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 and I'll give them my blessing and I'll give them my spirit and I'll give them kings and priests and a land and they surely will follow me. And if, if they obey, then this land will always be theirs and they can stay. He asks for holiness. And time and time again, we have offered him quite the opposite. Maybe that doesn't ring true to you. But hear it in, in these words, and I quote, Regardless of how good we feel about ourselves, how well that we think we are doing, or how much better we think we're becoming, there is no getting around the accusation. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or the words of the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy. To hear those words clearly is to hear that we are significantly worse off than we imagined ourselves to be. And when it gets down to motivation, even the best things we do, something in them needs to be forgiven. You see, we may not uh, have idols set up in our living room. Uh, we may not be uh, you know, uh, dabbling in all sorts of occult practices. But God says, this is all I want from you. This is how I know that you love me above everything else. Just be holy like I am holy. And then all will be well. And now we see the problem. <laughs> is that we're not even, uh, even grading on the best curve that we could come up with. Not even close to living up to that standard. And it's been the same old song since the beginning. And no amount of New Year's resolutions and no amount of gift giving and no amount of trying or fixing or motivational speakers has been able to change it to where we could actually come forward with the cash that God requires, a holiness that lives up to his expectation. And so we see then in Jeremiah, new growth, new growth. In those days, it says in verse 15, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. God says that after all this destruction, when the tree has been chopped down, the tree that was the kingdom of Israel, and you hear that language a lot in the Old Testament, you know, Assyria is called the greatest tree in Lebanon, and it says all of the animals of the world took shade under her branches, showing that the, the world's inhabitants, not speaking of actual animals, the other nations, found safety and security in the power that Assyria had. And he said, Israel was my tree. And I've chopped her to the ground. But out of that destruction, 
we will see two things promised. We'll see new growth and then a new name. And so let's focus on that new growth. We see this righteous branch will spring up for the house of David. And again, that language may seem strange to us, but get used to it. This really is Advent language and Christmas language. You can't sing the Christmas carols without knowing all this branch language, right? There's, there's branches uh, from, from the stem of Jesse. Uh, there, there's, uh, you know, from the stump in uh, uh, Isaiah 11. Things are springing up. This really is the language of Christmas. Might even be a good reason to buy a tree, but we can discuss that later. Uh, the branch described says uh, that we learn about he will be David's descendant, and in verse 33, clearly an heir to the throne. In fact, David's name will be mentioned five times in the verses following. This is a Davidic ruler who is going to come up and start once again a Davidic dynasty. So a kingdom is going to arise at some time in the future, and a king from David's line will rule over it, and while he does so, justice and righteousness will be executed in the land. The thing that was lacking, which may seem strange to us, you know, their whole city, even as the writing or, or the prophecy of Jeremiah is being given, their city is starting to be destroyed, the people are starting to be taken away, and the first thing that God says is, in that day I'll forgive your sins. You know, when the city's burning, that doesn't seem like the first thing you need, you know, is the forgiveness of sins. But God's trying to say, that's exactly what you need. This is the reason that the city's burning, and then he says, the next thing that you're going to get is a king who's righteous and executes righteousness. So the land will be ruled again, but also the land will be at peace again. This healthy branch will bear good fruit, uh, as we see throughout all of Scripture. Uh, that really is kind of the heart of this metaphor. We see, you know, the, the Messiah called this branch over and over, whether in Zechariah, my servant, the branch, whose name is Branch or the shoot from the stump of Jesse and Isaiah, this sprouting branch speaks to a time where a rebirth will happen, uh, a, a restoring of the nation of Israel. Somehow they will come to preeminence again, even though God is going to wipe them away and Babylon's going to carry them into captivity. God says a day is coming in the future when new growth will happen and a new king will reign and he will execute righteousness and justice like I've asked for in this kingdom. I mean, look around, you would think, uh, as an Israelite hearing this. How likely does that seem? When you're surrounded by one of the most powerful nations on earth, your strong men have already been taken away, your ability to resist is, is, is uh, almost uh, uh, non-existent. And he's saying, but don't worry, after you're completely destroyed and carried away, this kingdom will rise up again in a far better form than it uh, currently or even previously has existed in. But God is so sure of this promise, and He wants His people to be so sure of it, that He tells Jeremiah, what I want you to do now, once you tell them all that I'm destroying everything, is I want you to go buy real estate so that they know that you're coming back. I mean, can you imagine the investment strategy on this? He just tells everybody, you know, this is all going to be owned by someone else shortly, so I'm going to buy this piece of property for later. You know, for when we come back uh, years from now and regain this, it just seems again, you know, uh, like people telling you to, to to invest in you know Betamax in the current day. It's making a comeback. I promise. You should definitely put your money there. And so this prophecy comes on the heels of dispossession and defeat, 
And he says, but that's okay. A kingdom will rise up again out of these ashes. A branch, a king in particular, will, will grow. There will be new growth. And then we see in particular then, finally, a new name. A new name in verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Notice this promise. It says, in that day, when this righteous branch finally comes, and he rules, and the kingdom's reestablished, then there will be security in Judah. And the one thing that Israel really never had because her security was always based on her obedience. And their track record had been pretty spotty, to say the least. And so there was always this fear that at any moment, tragedy could strike. And yet he says, in this day, you will have security because of this particular king that arises. Up until this point, there was no one who could be trusted to do what was right, to be holy like God was holy. But he says, in this day, of, uh, when I set up this new nation, a new name will come hanging over the nation. Notice the name, the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And that is the ultimate promise of Christmas. Is that the Lord will do it. And if you see the promises of Jeremiah, it's impossible not to recognize this. I mean, listen to the new covenant promises from Jeremiah 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You ready for this? I will put my law within their hearts. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. I will gather them all the countries to which I drove them. And I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. And I will not turn away from them from doing good. I will put fear of me in their hearts. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land in faithfulness. With all my heart and all my soul. And the prophets have come saying to Israel time and time again. Your righteousness is as filthy rags, and God says, fine, even that, even that I will do. I will become your righteousness. And by putting on human flesh and being born in the line of David, a just and a righteous king came. God himself came and was obedient for us in the midst of the winter of this world came this particular Christmas day. I mean, God has done it. Literally, God himself has done it. He has done what he required so that you and I could reap the reward of being righteous. I mean, we've been all life long like little children trying to help dad with a serious project, you know, always underfoot and in the way, slowing down the process, and finally God just set us aside, finished the project on our behalf, and then signed our name to it as if we'd done it ourselves. And that's what Paul says, does it not, in Romans chapter 9 and 10, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. How's that? That is a righteousness that comes by faith. And he goes on to say, if we're being ignorant of the righteousness of God, notice God's very own righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, 
They did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When God says, be holy as I am holy, or be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, he means it. He genuinely requires that in order to be with him. And then he gives it. He gives to his own what he requires. Martin Luther, in his essay, Two Kinds of Righteousness, I guess in his sermon, he writes this, Alien righteousness, that is the righteousness of another, instilled from without, that is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies through faith. Therefore, a man can have confidence and boast in Christ and say, Mine are Christ's living and doing and speaking, his suffering and his dying. Mine is as much as if I had lived and done and spoke and suffered and died just as he did. Everything which Christ has is ours, graciously bestowed on us unworthy men out of God's sheer mercy. Although we have rather deserved wrath and condemnation and hell also. And the prophet comes saying, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. When a righteous branch, a new growth will come, and with that new branch will come a new name over his people. The Lord is our righteousness. And Christ has come. He has died, and he has risen. And we are righteous, even now, before the face of God but we're not doing so well before the face of men yet. In that regard, it is still very much winter. I mean, take a quick stock of, of your week. I mean, part of the beauty uh, of this season, even in that confession of sin, is having to look long at things that make us feel uncomfortable. You know, every time we do that confession, I get someone that comes to me afterwards and says, like, I don't covet my neighbor's spouse. You know, uh, I may do a lot of other things, but that's why I can't confess that sin out loud while they complain about their own spouse, which is the identical thing. You're, you have an ideal spouse that exists that just doesn't happen to be the one you have. Uh, and so you're coveting whoever he is or she is. You know. We are not yet righteous. And part of what Advent is teaching us is not just that uh, God is going to give us these gifts by faith, where we're righteous before the face of God, as wonderful as that is, but he will come again to give us that righteousness in fact before the face of men. We will be holy as he is holy. As we are promised by the Apostle John, we will see him. And we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. When Jesus says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect, he is going to give us that actual perfection where we will always and only do what is pleasing in God's sight by what we think and by what we say and by what we want. I mean, living on this side of things, that seems like a very strange fiction, almost too good to be true. And yet this is exactly what is promised to us in Christ's return. And this is our great hope in the midst of a dark world, that God has acted. That God has done it. Your hope is not in you, but completely outside of you. 
It is in this king and his rule that will have implications for all peoples. Notice in those days we will dwell in safety and security and we'll have a name worth having. All because one particular king came, lived righteously, obeyed wholly, and died in our stead in order that he could raise us to newness of life. And that name that we wear is his name. It's now ours, just like his righteousness is ours. The reason for our safety in this present life is not because Christmas takes away the dangers of this world, but because we have a righteous king who only and always does righteous things. And he promises to keep us to the end and to give us his very own righteousness as a reward. Which is an odd thing when you look at the wreckage, not only of this world, but of yourself. I mean, think of the mess you've made. I mean, in all honesty. <laughs> what are some of the things that you've done that can't be undone? What are some of the things that you've said that can't be unsaid? I mean, part of the pain of this life is that the bridges that you burn down can't always be rebuilt. And when you're done looking at yourself, God says, look away, because that is where your righteousness is. Always and only and sure. It is in God himself who not only requires it, but gives it. And he gives it in the faithfulness of his son who, is, who came and lived and died for you. May you continue to look to him and at him through this season as we look at uh, the pain that we've caused, but also the salvation that God has brought by his own power for our sake. Let's pray.